what are the driving forces of digital transformation? When it comes to digital transformation, what role do consumers and governments play? How can organizations leverage innovation and artificial intelligence? What can organizations do to gain a competitive advantage with vast amounts of generated data? This is Inductive Conversations with our host, Don Pearson, speaking with our guest, Jeff Winter, Industry Executive Manufacturing at Microsoft. Well, good morning, everybody, and I'm so happy to be here with Jeff Winter. And um, I know, Jeff, we've had a lot of conversations on and off the record, so to speak, over time. And I really do appreciate the opportunity to actually talk to you in this podcast format and share some of your thoughts uh, beyond just you and I having conversations. But since I know you in the audience, a number of them probably do, but there's probably those that don't. Can you say a little bit about yourself, just a little bit about your background and sort of get us set the stage for today's conversation? Sure. So my name is Jeff Winter and I am an industry executive for manufacturing with Microsoft. And what that basically means is it's my job to help manufacturers digitally transform at scale. But in order to do this successfully, I need to be intimately involved with what's happening in the industry. And that's why I'm involved in quite a few different associations and academic groups and advisory panels, standards bodies, and even research teams within Microsoft so that I can share the latest and greatest in the industry and how manufacturers can benefit. So most people usually end up knowing me through one of those uh, associations or involvements. Well, I do know that our, um, our association came in all the different things you've done over the last years and uh, inductive automation and our software has been something you've known about. So it's crossed paths with you and your professional and you've crossed paths with us. So it's great to sit and have a little conversation. I, I want to start with something that I think is, uh, well, clearly, if I look at anything that you publish, talk about, whatever, digital transformation is pretty important um, to you and your activities. Uh, and digital transformation, clearly, from the viewpoint of inductive automation and our ignition platform, we're minorly biased that our platform is useful in digital transformation, and, and we intend it to be so. In fact, we're internally doing a lot of uh, evolution of our own messaging to be a little bit more appropriate for um, for what's going on in the industry overall. Um, but you, in today's podcast, I want to uh, go into something that you talked about and you wrote about not that long ago on the what you're calling the five forces driving digital transformation. And I, I like the approach. I was actually looking at a, a number of the, uh, the comments and your response to those comments through your LinkedIn activity. And I went, wow, this is, uh, this is resonating. It's resonating. So, um, you put the, the, the rubric, the format together, the template together of those ideas. So let's, um, maybe let's dig into it, okay? And I'm, I'm, I kind of want to use it as a guideline. I'm just going to pick a force and ask you some questions about it and see what direction it goes, if that's okay with you. That'd be great. And I like that you're focusing on the content of my post, those five forces, instead of the picture of me dressing up as a, as a Jedi for May the 4th be with you. <laughs> I was going to do a May the 4th be with you uh, lead in, but I thought in the interest of maybe trying to be somewhat professional here, I would, I would skip it, but it was appreciated. It was appreciated. That's good. So let's go. The force of consumers. Uh, what role do consumers play when you think of digital transformation? I have to say, oftentimes I think about it from the industrial standpoint. But when you think about the fact that industry makes things and consumers buy things, there's a consumer drive component too. So 
Talk about that force a little bit. Sure. So this can be looked at in two ways. Uh, first is the company side and the second is actually the consumer side. And from the company side, creating an exceptional, highly relevant customer experience is top priority for most digital transformation initiatives. In fact, according to HBR, I believe it's 40% of companies listed as their top priority. And this is actually widely different, though, unfortunately, for uh, four different industries. For example, manufacturing is only at 26% and banking is at 52%. But PwC in 2022 actually did a similar study and find that besides the direct ROI of digital transformation, the biggest payoff for it was actually creating better customer experiences with three fourths of the companies actually realizing those benefits. But digital transformation can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so the way I like to look at it and think about it is digital transformation is the integration of digital technologies into all areas of a business, resulting in the fundamental or transformational change in how the business operates and the value that it delivers to customers. This means changing the way the business interacts with customers throughout the entire buying journey and aligning that interaction in real time with the entire product lifecycle, closing the, the customer feedback loop and providing better customer experience, which usually results in more frequent buying, more loyal buying, and an overall higher lifetime value of each customer. Now, this leads me to the other way of answering the question, which is the customer, the consumer side, or, you know, should I say the rapidly changing consumer environment, which goes hand in hand with the first part that I just mentioned. Well, when you do that, I'm just curious, are you, are, maybe you're jumping into the question I was going to ask. So from a consumer's viewpoint, what kinds of things are really important to them? I mean, obviously, in your answer so far, you hit a lot of those. But when I'm a consumer, what do I want? from banking, from manufacturing, and what are the things that are critical to me in this digitally transformed world? So it's interesting you ask it that way, and uh, we'll see if I answer it, because not all consumers necessarily know what they want. So if you look at the trends that are taking place at a macro level, you can have a better understanding of what you perceive they might want is a part of it, but very few people directly actually know exactly what they're looking for. They might know from a product, but they don't know necessarily the ways, the methods and, and the whole experience. So if you look at some of the consumer buying habits, they're changing and they're changing quickly. So what they are today may be different than what they are a year or two from now. So not only are sentiments and interest changing, uh, for, for the buyers, but the mechanisms for how people shop and how they buy are changing. And they're all pointing towards this digital consumer. So if we go over a few examples, the industry is seeing more demand for transparency about the products that are being purchased and the companies themselves. You know, with products, people want to know what the product is made of or how it will be disposed if it's a physical product. Or with food, it could be about the entire traceability through the supply chain. People also want to know more about the companies themselves. Sustainability and environmentally being environmentally friendly and acting ethically have become huge decision criteria as, uh, as part of the purchasing process. I mean, for example, IBM conducted a study that found that 73% of consumers consider sustainability and environmental responsibility to be at least moderately important to a brand value. And if you're thinking, 
so what? How does that impact purchases? Well, Harvard Business School ran a report and found that sustainable products are actually have a 5.6 times higher average growth compared to those that aren't making sustainability as part of their marketing message. So yeah, it matters. That absolutely blows my mind, even though as a consumer, it is important to me. So I, I, I just always considered maybe I was uh, weird and on this far, far side of a bell-shaped curve, which has been the case more than once in my life. So I thought, well, I, I make choices based on a company's sustainability plans and how they think and uh, the way they, their culture and the things like that. And it is important to me, but that 73% number honestly kind of shocks me in a good way. I think that's a, I, I personally think it's a good thing. And that's an example where it's important to consumers, but they may not know exactly what they're looking for as a part of it. They just know it's factoring in and weighing into their decision. But that's just one area. If you look at customers are also desiring a much more personalized shopping experience. And according to Pitney Bowes, 73% of consumers prefer to do business with brands that personalize their shopping experience. But customers are also just demanding faster response to sales or marketing questions, and they're expecting faster delivery right even to your doorstep. And those are just a few trends. But honestly, it doesn't really matter what they are right now, because without digitally transforming, it's hard to keep pace with whatever they're going to be next year. Yeah, it's really true. When you think about digital transformation, we're not talking about companies having a little piece of growth, an incremental gain. We're talking about trying to uh, empower companies to order of magnitude changes. I mean, significant changes to meet all those customer demands of now and the ones they don't even know they're going to make in the future. You have to digitally transform those organizations. The, uh, the way they've been operating historically in the industrial sphere just won't, won't work. All right, well, listen, let's go to another force, the force of governments. All right. Just to kind of segue into that, obviously, governments are playing a big role. Uh, certainly in our government in this country, we are seeing more and more dollars going to assist companies. Yeah, and speaking of environment, I mean, we've got programs in this country that are giving money over to business and over to industry, as well as the public sector, to try and empower changes in how they do business. When you think of digital transformation and the role of governments, what role do you think they, they, they play in advancing digital transformation? So that's, that's a good question. As you probably know, the whole idea of Industry 4.0 was prominently introduced to the world at Hanover Messe in 2011. And then it turned into the high-tech strategy 2020 action plan uh, by the German government in the year 2012. And is far as I know, that's really the first government initiative for Industry 4.0. And this idea kind of took hold and pretty soon dozens of other governments developed their own initiatives, similar in purpose, but different in execution and scope. I mean, China developed their Made in 2025 initiative to fully modernize their country's manufacturing industry. United Kingdom introduced their future manufacturing in 2013. And even the European Union developed their factories of the future in 2014. Singapore came out with their REI or RIE uh, 2020 plans. And yes, even the United States in 2014 launched Manufacturing USA initiative. And, that one created a network of 16 member institutes. And each of these institutes focuses on a very specific advanced manufacturing technology. And they, 
they pull together private sector companies and academic institutions and other stakeholders in the industry to pursue collaborative research and development and even test applications, train workers, and just kind of reduce the general risks associating with companies deploying new technologies. Uh, so we're seeing it all over the place. And the two biggest ones I uh, am most familiar with it from the Manufacturing USA side are SESME and MXD. <clears throat> Um, but what's crazy, if you look at kind of their impact in 2021, just last year, the Manufacturing USA Institutes, all of them kind of collectively, they supported over 700 major um, applied R&D projects that involved something like, like 2,300 different organizations. And they provided 90,000 people with advanced manufacturing kind of workforce development and training. I think they spent like $480 million in different state and federal uh, funds supporting these activities. So the role, I'd say it's a pretty big one and a lot of companies are doing it. And, and just just so our audience will know, talk a little bit about you mentioned two organizations, Sesame and MMC. Can you can you just articulate a little bit? I mean, I'm familiar with Sesame, but tell us a little bit what those organizations do with whatever money or funding or support they're getting. What's their what's their way of operating? Well, I'll do a Sesame and, and MXD from from the bit I know them. So both of these are jointly funded. Um, entities, I guess I would say, where there's backing by, uh, by money by the government, and then they get participation from people in the industry. They work on projects. Those projects are out for bid. So if one of them's of interest, you can you know, contribute some of your resources and, and money and time along with theirs, and you get to develop something as a result of it. And that development then gets kind of shared and disseminated uh, with others. So for example, um, MXD has a, a bid out right now that has something like like, I don't know, 38 days left or whatever the days are for their digital manufacturing playbook. And this is gonna you know, work on developing something for small to mid-sized manufacturers on everything from how they digitize and automate, how they do um, cobots and machine monitoring and shop floor data visualization and machine vision. And they're gonna do all that and they're going to be developing it. Now, one thing that makes um, MXD a little bit different than, for example, Sesame is MXD actually has a facility, a physical factory floor in Chicago. I've been to it several times. I'm going to it in a couple of days. Um, and so they have actual like a working mini factory there to demonstrate some of the stuff. And all that little factories are set up by companies showing how it all works together. Um, but for example, something that they've already created is their cybersecurity assessment tool. And that's you know, focused on evaluating against the NIST cybersecurity framework. But SESME is an example, one that I, I really like and work with. They're producing their, um, one of the things that they're doing very well right now working on is their smart manufacturing profiles, which are kind of um, an innovative way of representing data in, in kind of like a structured informational model to, to move data into context. Uh, is really what it's doing to provide value to organizations for particular applications. And they have dozens of them being worked on right now as we speak. And you can see them on your website. Uh, some of them are in progress. Some of them you can still bid on. I know that one that they told me about uh, recently uh, that was worked on with a food manufacturer, they developed this, this profile and it made a 25% improvement in, the, in their yield uh, through this. And so the, the results are real just through the development of this you know, collaborative effort to advance smart manufacturing. That is really, I mean, I think those initiatives are really important. And obviously governments around the world have their own 
political, uh, economic, and uh, their, their own motivational scale for everything they're doing. But the overall is to obviously improve the manufacturing uh, of their of their country. And I'm assuming a competitive advantage in the world, too, to give them some, some sort of a leg up and moving forward. So, but uh, uh, any other examples that come to mind? And if not, we'll move on to another force. But anything else you wanted to share just in the governments and how they're approaching the subject of innovation and digital transformation? There's a lot of resources there. If you look at the primary things, it's advancement of the technology, it's training, um, and it, there's some risk that is being mitigated through some funding and other mechanisms. So really, if you're a manufacturer, you should be looking at these institutes. They're there, there's resources available. Like I said, I only talked about two, there's 14 more, and they may be resonating with exactly your particular industry and what you're doing. And there's probably more there available than you realize to help you be more successful in your digital transformation or industry 4.0 journey. Sure, sure. I know I, I just as an organization, we, we chose to be involved with Sesame just as one of those opportunities. And a number of our integrators and the people that we're working with around the world, certainly around the country in this sense, are um, involved with and, in, and engaged in projects there. So it's glad to see that kind of stuff going on. Let's shift to another force here, the force of innovation everywhere. Um, and I certainly know that, um, well, certainly our company's been called a bit disruptive over the years and that uh, we consider that a compliment, okay? But uh, what we've been trying to do, obviously, is be a player in this ecosystem of innovative companies trying to address issues and think of things in new ways. And companies are challenged to try and uh, unleash innovation. Um, they're heavily investing in innovation. And how important, if you think of the mindset of innovation versus the mindset of a more stayed fixed culture inside a company how important is the mindset of innovation for a company when they're when they're really trying to digitally transform what role does that play so if you already don't know me and don't follow me on linkedin you're definitely going to find out i love my stats so yes well, I, I do know you love your stats <laughs> according to mckinsey 84 percent of business executives believe that innovation is essential to growth and although innovation isn't new, its formality as part of an organizational strategy is on the rise. Unfortunately, though, only 43% of corporations have uh, what experts consider to be a well-defined process for innovation. That's according to um, um, the research firm CB Insights. But I like to make sure that we're on the same page with what innovation actually is. And my personal favorite definition of innovation is the practical implementation of ideas that result in the introduction of new goods or services or improvements in the way goods or services are offered. And innovations emerging from unexpected places, and it could support both the top line and the bottom line of organizations. And those that are digitally transforming are finding newer and more ways to innovate. But how important is culture in this? Very, I mean, culture of innovation is it's a it's a workplace environment that encourages employees to share creative ideas and solutions but you need senior leadership to be bought in on this and ideally someone at, at the helm like a chief innovation officer that helps develop the processes clear the roadblocks and and build that culture of innovation but what's interesting is the role of chief innovation officer i it was like first um I think like publicly introduced and in, is like 1998 in this in this book called like fourth generation R&D. But like 
24 years later, I guess, or whatever it would be, 24 years later, it's estimated that only around 30% of Fortune 500 companies currently have the chief innovation officer as a formal role. And this may be why in 2019, IDC predicted that 40% of chief information officers or CIOs will be co-leading the innovation process in organizations by this year, 2022. Because in absence of a chief innovation officer, the, the functional responsibilities, they, they fall on the shoulders of the CIO. And this means the CIO is no longer focusing on just managing information systems and data systems and knowledge systems, but this role is about driving innovation by accelerating all the other functions you know, of, of the company through integrated technologies. But when most people think of innovation, they usually think of inventing a new product. But if that's how you think of it, you're going to be missing so much of the opportunity here. And I always like to, to represent the, the um, innovation firm Doblin because they came out with this famous 10 types of innovation. And I, I remember them. It's, it's product performance. It's uh, service channel. It's uh, product system. It's brand. It's customer engagement. It's profit model, network, structure, and process. And that's a lot more than just inventing a new product. And a chief innovation officer should be evaluating all 10 of these and building them into the culture. So you look for many ways to innovate, not just one. Oh, absolutely. And I think I probably know the answer to this question, but we've seen a lot of things come and go inside organizational trends over the years. Industry hasn't always been the fastest to catch on to a new idea. And sometimes something will come and go. So this, this focus on innovation, these 10 approaches or 10 parts of an organization where innovation should occur. The good definition you gave us of innovation, is this coming and going, just gonna be another trend and we will go back in time to where we were before, or is this innovation with us and gonna to continue to evolve inside the cultures of more successful organizations? Well, I hope it's a rhetorical answer, but innovation is critical for companies to adapt to overcome the challenges of change. And right now the world is changing faster than it ever has, mostly driven by advancements in new technology. According to a Stanford study, innovation has been responsible for up to 85% of all economic growth. That's crazy. So if you think about that, but simply put, companies will have to be innovative to survive. Let's use AI is just one example. So World Economic Forum in 2020 said that by 2025, 85 million jobs are expected to be displaced. Yet at the same time, 97 million new jobs are anticipated to be created. And one technology at the heart of most of that is AI. And it's driven by our huge influx in data. And if you look at the top three uh, growing jobs right now, they're data analysts and scientists. AI and ML specialist, and big data specialist, according to that report. But according to McKinsey, we actually saw a decrease in innovation during the pandemic as some companies focus more on short-term issues with the exception of pharmaceutical companies, which I think makes sense. Yet the irony is those who invest in innovation through a crisis continually outperform peers during the recovery period, which I would argue we're in right now. And we're starting to see that. So in short, I think we're going to be see a, not just a emphasis on innovation, but a bigger emphasis uh, on innovation going forward. More investment in innovation, more formality in innovation, uh, and more inclusion inside the, the business processes. Now, 
you actually touched on two of your forces because you've got artificial intelligence and infiltration of that technology across the boards. And then also you've got the innovation everywhere kind of force. So I don't know if there's anything more you want to comment on the technologies that you think are going to drive innovation. Uh, AI clearly, the job creation clearly, um, that's a critical component because we're talking about digital transformation. And in the digital world, AI, AR, ML, these are all evolutions that are driving a tremendous amount of innovative change. Any other comments on that subject of AI and the role it's going to play? Yes, and there's a reason why I picked AI is, is that technology. Um, and it's interesting because I get asked the question a lot, is AI critical for digital transformation? And it's an interesting question. It's a, it's a tricky one to answer because we, if we look at the way that I went over kind of defining digital transformation and you know one of the first questions you asked, the integration of digital technology into all areas of the business resulting in a fundamental or transformational change in how the business operates and delivers value to customers, that definition, if we use that, then I would argue AI isn't necessary for digital transformation to occur. You could completely transform without using AI, but that being said, I would say you would massively limit the capability and power of your transformation if you didn't use it. So if we use the Akatech Industry 4.0 maturity model as an example, they break out your maturity into six levels, all right? They have computerization, connectivity, visibility, transparency, predictive capability, and adaptability at the top. The first two, computerization and connectivity, are what we really define as industry 3.0. And the remaining four are really thought of as industry 4.0. So at the bottom uh, of the industry 4.0 scale with visibility, you're answering questions like, what is happening? Which a lot of companies still can't answer this question at scale yet. And you don't need AI to help answer this question. But if you move up, uh, up the levels, so like level four, uh, you're, you're at transparency, which you're answering the question, why is it happening? And then when you get to levels five and six, you're answering what will happen in the future and how can autonomous kind of response be achieved? You can't do those without AI. So I would describe AI if utilized correctly as like the pinnacle or epitome of industry 4.0. It's the technology that's able to take advantage of all the other technologies out there like IoT uh, that generates the data, cloud that stores and processes it, digital twins to create virtual representations, you name it. AI is what helps all those be far more useful than they ever could be on their own. And that's because at its core, AI is really a decision-making tool that can either help augment or automate decisions. But what makes AI so interesting and powerful and fascinating to me is because compared to most other technologies out there, it's extremely ubiquitous in its application. It impacts nearly every industry, nearly every department, nearly every job function from the shop floor all the way up to the CEO. And I can't think of many other technologies that have that big or that wide of an impact. I mean, two I can only think of would be like the internet and electricity. So I view it as, as critical if you're trying to really truly transform your company at scale to the maximum level. Sure, no, it totally makes sense, totally makes sense, Jeff. 
So in, pro in the process of our discussion here, we have hit on, and you're talking about connectivity, you're talking about anything from, when we look at it, we say we're trying to go from central to cloud and back again, when we're trying to empower the ability to get data from everywhere. And I've certainly said over the years in conversations I've had, uh, you can't have big data without big data access. And uh, again, because as a company, we are very much engaged in the bottom-up viewpoint, OT to IT convergence, rather than IT down to OT. We say you can't have, IT can have all the greatest solutions in the world, all the AI capabilities you can possibly, you are not going to digitally transform if you don't have access. And if uh, that guy out on that oil well doesn't feel that you're giving him a better operation system. So you've got to basically satisfy customers all the way, and you've got to have access to data. And access is big in industry when you have 40-year-old equipment still in operation and people not planning on changing it in some cases. You live in a brownfield world. So on data, that's a force. You talk about the forces of data. Talk about that from the viewpoint of digital transformation. Sure. So whenever we talk about Industry 4.0, I, I really like to kind of simplify this way of describing it. I like to describe industry 3.0 is about automation, the reduction of human intervention and processes. Industry 4.0 is about cognition or the process of acquiring knowledge and understanding. And these two are separated by your ability to properly capture and harness the power of data. Data is often considered to be the lifeblood of digital transformation. So without a data strategy, you're going to be running wild trying to capture and harness this power as you kind of approach industry 4.0. And I, I would argue that the development of a data strategy is one of the first things you should be doing as you start to kind of set up your company's digital core. And if you aren't familiar, a, a digital core is like the basic operational data infrastructure of an organization that takes advantage of fully integrated, flexible, and scalable platforms centralized around a common data model. And this digital core, I mean, it, it empowers companies with real-time visibility into all mission critical business processes from suppliers all the way to customers to kind of to help thrive in this this digital economy and it helps provide better collaboration between functions within the company to just better predict and simulate and plan and even anticipate future business outcomes but there's many components to a digital strategy the big three that i recommend uh, that you at least should have as part of part of your overall data strategies Three components, I would say, is you should have your data governance strategy. This is about your people and processes, decision rights, policies, standards. Then you should have your, your data management strategy, which is all about the data itself and the technology. This includes data storage, data architecture, data quality, reference, and master data. And then third, you should have your data analytics strategy. And this is about data and technology, but about how you use the data, the tools and methods, and kind of how they, they link it to support business decisions. And if you don't have that, you're just gonna be collecting a boatload of data and you're not even really gonna be using it. But according to research done by University of Texas, Austin, a 10% increase in data usability increases the average Fortune 1000 company's revenue by over $2 billion, which is crazy. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, you said something in passing that I, I want to go back to because you used the word cognition, and I really like that. It actually reminds me of a, 
um, a concept that I got from, uh, I can't even remember what it was one of these, uh, I was in search of the killer app book, I think, which came out many, many, many years ago. And they had a concept in there of data and a pyramid. And you had data, information, knowledge, and wisdom. Data, information, knowledge, wisdom. And when you use that word cognition, and it, it, it's always struck me as interesting that for a long time, people would just kick data up to a data lake. Let's just get data, get data. Well, quantity of data does not equate quality of thinking or quality of work. And I think there's a process here that's involved where, yes, there's quantity of data. And then there's, and yes, you want complete data sets. And then there's some sort of context. You turn it into information. People get more knowledge. And then they're able to create, innovate, and apply that knowledge effectively to expand and improve their organizations. So I think I've often, when and in this whole process of data acquisition, one wanting to say we need to continue to emphasize on how you integrate that into your organization and how you get that to turn into wise decision making for better organizational operation. And you're talking about that as you're discussing the evolution of how one integrates a data strategy into your organization. So I think it's really an interesting area, the, the world of data quantity. And you even had some statistics, I think I saw it on your post, that talked about how much data we have now. You know, you're going to repeat it. How many terabytes, or what's the petabytes of data we have now compared to history? No, yeah, I remember it. I mean, Eric Schmidt famously said in, in 2010, the former CEO of Google, that it was estimated that five exabytes worth of data were made in all of civilization up until the year 2003. In the year 2020, we created 64 zettabytes worth of information, which is like 13,000 times the amount of information is all of history combined up until 2003. And so we're making a tremendous amount of data out there. And according to Splunk, 55% of enterprise data is either unknown or unused by anyone in the company. Anyone. So that's just wasted generated data that no one either knows exists or is using. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity here without even spending money to collect new data. Just use the data that you have. It's amazing when you think about that, Jeff, just the, the potential. So here's a, a, a maybe a devil's advocate question, maybe not. But so what should we be? We got these technologies. We're gathering tons of data. Um, AI is certainly influencing us in terms of job generation and the change of how business operate. Should we be cautious about this? Should we be worried about some of these technologies? Should we have reservations about it? Um, what are the things that an organization should be thinking about as they expand their digital transformation strategies and innovate and use more of these newer technologies? That's uh, it's an interesting question because in general, this is just my opinion that most of the, the risks that people take are around the, the project itself, the funding, the ROI. We're going to call it the risks of adoption of any new technology. AI is one I'm going to kind of push aside here, and that's what we're going to talk about, because that's the one that has potential concerns, threats, and risks by the technology itself that you don't really have with IoT is an example. You have this with AI. There are concerns with this technology because you have to remember the very purpose of AI is to help augment or automate decisions. And as soon as you do that, you open up a whole slew of questions about things that you never had to think of with any other technology. There are concerns with privacy, transparency, bias, uh, inequality, safety, security. 
Now, as far as I know, all the big major companies that develop uh, in advanced AI as a fundamental technology have addressed this concern and, and have focused on helping to educate everyone uh, who, who uses AI. Now, I know that Microsoft in particular uses the term responsible AI that encapsulates their commitment to the advancement of AI driven by ethical principles that put people first. And they've created guidelines, management tools, technology tools, checklists, playbooks, and even developed an AI business school, which I recommend because I took it, just to help you with, with all of this and understanding it, all designed to help you assess design and deploy AI responsibly so you don't do any of those, those things, either intentionally or unintentionally with it because it is a decision-making tool. So uh, I actually think that they're doing a fantastic job of helping to educate the community on this. Um, I mean, just to put in perspective, I just recently passed, passed my, uh, my Azure AI Fundamentals exam and a good chunk of the training and testing was on responsible use of AI. So yeah, it's important. And the first step is education. Be aware of what the technology can do and how biases and unethical decisions can be made if they're not checked and caught. I appreciate you making some comments on that and, and also the comments about Microsoft's approach to it because I, I maybe that's just a personal bias I have. I think as I've seen technologies advance um, and, and since my background was really on the people side of the business, um, for uh, a long period of time, even before coming to uh, inductive automation, beginning to work with the team over here, was just how do things affect people and what are the concerns we do that are going to basically be using technologies to enhance the evolution of a company and the kind of, and the, the people's experience in the company and the people consuming it. These are critical issues uh, as one looks at the advancements of technology. Now listen, we have covered a lot of ground, but I don't know, and I, I've been just you know, pelting you with questions, but I appreciate your willingness to just expand on those too. Um, other thoughts, you know, other thoughts you may want to cover. Um, we, you know, we don't really time these podcasts. We just talk until we're done and then we're done. But um, I just want to give a few more minutes maybe to anything you can see that you would like to just kind of share in the, in the work you're doing now as it affects digital transformation and, uh, and the world of industry. Sure. I, I mean, I, I love the structure and framework of this being around those five, uh, five forces of digital transformation. One of the things that I like to kind of encourage people, and it's more of a, a motto, a mindset, if you want to call it, is how to think about digital transformation when you're starting it, when you're in the middle of it, kind of how, how you approach it. I, I encourage companies and people, when you start thinking about digital transformation, think big, start small, and act fast. I think that that's great advice to give people who are trying to figure out what they're doing, getting stuck um, or tried and uh, failed as, as a part of it. You need to be thinking big continually, starting small and acting fast. And the big one I think most people overlook is actually the acting fast. They get too caught up or they think about this as a traditional large single entity monolithic project or initiative instead of a whole bunch of small iterative flexible agile you know kind of approaches to transforming the company. And if you can do that, if you can start to act fast, start small, but to have the, the big picture vision in mind, you're going to be far more successful than trying to bite off this giant elephant in one, you know, one bite and go, we are going to digitally transform. Here's our perfect master plan. Because I've not found a company yet that's uh, had that. 
I don't think they do. And it's interesting that you say it that way because I, I couldn't agree more. I think the iterative process of, of pieces that come together, but yes, have the bigger vision in mind. Um, uh, I, I know many, many years ago, um, there was a book called Seven Habits of uh, Highly Effective People written by a guy named Stephen Covey. And one of his seven habits of highly effective people was begin with the end in mind, begin with the end in mind. And I think that's critical when you take a look at digital transformation, at least have the big picture there, but realize don't take on too big of pieces. You've got to be able to then iterate, move fast, but those pieces are part of a bigger process. And each piece on its own brings value, but the whole process is critical too. And I think you've emphasized that really well in just even many of the forces you're talking about. Well, one thing I like to add that most people don't think about, if your digital transformation is truly successful, at the level I'm talking about, level six, the you know, highest uh, on industry 4.0, you realize that everyone's job in the company changes. How many people and companies are prepared for that level of change? So to perfectly plan it all out you know, the first time is nearly impossible. You gotta have these small uh, you know, changes that you're making along the way towards your big picture transformation. But everyone's job changes if you achieve the fundamental transformational goal that you seek to do. Oh, that's so true. I'm talking about now just, I serve as Chief Strategy Officer with Inductive Automation. And I'll tell you that when I think about us, when we started out and we're in the business of a technology to help people with digital transformation and be, be part of that ecosystem, right? But I think about our company. I think about what's happened as we have scaled over the last 18 years. And yes, everybody's job has changed and there's continual change. So very critical point for people to be aware of. Well, listen, Jeff, I, uh, we could chat for a long time here. I'm sure we have in the past. So what do you think as a concluding, anything you wanna leave our audience with as we wrap up here today? There's a bright future ahead for digital transformation. You don't have to feel like you're behind the curve when it comes to this. There is still so much to do and there is a lot changing and exciting for the future. So I hope that people are just inspired by this and you know, eager no matter where you are in your phase to continue to transform and kind of achieve the vision of Industry 4.0. Well, thank you very much for joining today. And I do always appreciate your voice out there in the process that's going on and helping companies along. So continue to do it. And we will probably end up coming around to this kind of a conversation again at some point in the future. Looking forward to it. Good. Thanks. Hey, listeners. This is a quick reminder to subscribe to our podcast if you're enjoying the conversations. Also, if you have a topic or a question you'd like us to cover, or if you're interested in being a guest on a future episode, then please send your inquiries to podcast at inductiveautomation.com.